What we are going to have in this tape is a mock debate. The term mock is correct here as there will be of necessity some ridicule, but it won't be in a laughing sense. As a matter of fact, this debate will be of the utmost serious nature. Actually, what I will be doing here is I will be using a tape that was made at a Pete Peters camp retreat and breaking into the message at critical points where the speaker is making an error. This tape is a critical review, so there is no copyright violations involved here. Let's analyze what we may have here. With that name Weissman, and I really don't know how he spells it, he quite possibly might be Jewish. Now the Jews did borrow names from the Germans, but this one doesn't seem to be one of them. Well, if Weissman is a Jew, and if Pete Peters is a Pueblo Indian, what kind of a discussion is this going to be on two seed line teaching? We really should check out this Weissman for if he is part Jewish, then he is a serpent. Even if he is less than 1% serpent, he is all serpent. As for Pete Peters being part Pueblo Indian, I have seen his picture on the cover of Media Bypass and on videotapes, and he looks Indian to me. This guy, Charles Weissman, is a very savvy speaker. We have to give him credit on that account, but just because he speaks well doesn't make everything he says correct. As a matter of fact, in this tape, which will be presented soon here, he makes several serious errors. I will play portions of his presentation on his disavowal of the two-seed line doctrine, breaking in at times to point out his errors. Charles Wiseman was definitely one of the intellectuals of the people. And he is a man that's been a very diligent scholar for what I can ascertain. He has some very fine writings, and I've been blessed immensely from some of the things that he has brought. Shall we give Charles Wiseman a hand? I have stated in my last message that there are problems, errors, in identity teachings, and have pointed out some of them. I want to continue in that vein of thought by examining a popular and rather controversial identity teaching called Seedline Doctrine, or more correctly, the Cain Satanic Seedline Doctrine. The concept of Seedline is actually quite prevalent throughout the Bible. The Bible talks about children, and it talks about sons, and it talks about our fathers, and it talks about generations, and genealogies, and who begat who, and so forth. The Bible would not even exist without the concept of seed line. In fact, Christianity could not legitimately exist without the concept of seed line. The Messiah, the Redeemer, 
was to come from a specific seed line. And if Jesus did not come from that seed line, he is not the Messiah. And thus, his seed line is meticulously spelled out in the Gospels. This doctrine that I'm going to deal with, then, I'd rather call the Cain Satanic seed line, because just seed line is rather erroneous and misleading. This is a seed line that involves Cain and the serpent. Now, over the years, I have been asked quite a lot about this doctrine, and even up until this camp, I've been confronted with it. And I'd like to read to you a couple of letters I have received from people inquiring about this doctrine that I have recently received. One man writes to me and says this, Dear Charles, perhaps you can resolve a matter for me that I have been wrestling with for some time now. It concerns the seed line doctrine, Genesis 3.15. First, I see a satanic connection in world Jewry today. Then I read some of the various authors regarding seed line, both pro and con. Then he mentions some people. Some say yes, some say no to Cain's satanic bloodline. Then I come back to such quotes as, You are of your father the devil, and from the blood of righteous Abel. And these just won't let me drop the question. Now, I can see the very definite introduction of an Edomite Esau bloodline into Jewry, no doubt there. But please share your thoughts on this matter of a satanic bloodline prior to Esau Edom. Another man writes to me, What is the real truth of what really happened in Eden? Was Cain a biological mongrel? Who was the serpent? And so forth. Do you know of a published work or tapes that could point me to the real truth of Genesis 3? Please advise. So you see this uh, has generated a great deal of interest. People <coughs> want to know this. There are many books on it, and I've got uh, some books on it, and I have a videotape titled Basic Identity, which goes into this concept to a great deal. So a lot of people consider <clears throat> this doctrine kind of basic to their identity theology. The Cain Satanic Sea Line Doctrine asserts that the serpent of Genesis 3.15 was either a fallen angel uh, Satan incarnate, or the devil in some form or manner. And it is said that this entity or person had sexual intercourse with Eve, producing Cain. Thus, the curse and en enmity that's on the serpent and its satanic tra traits were carried on in Cain and is his descendants. The result is a satanic serpent race that has been at war with Adam's descendants. And it is said that this sexual act was the fall of Adamic man and when sin entered the world. Now Genesis 3.15 does speak of two seeds and an enmity between them. No one can deny that. But many people believe that it is Satan's descendants through Cain that have the enmity with Adam's descendants 
through Seth. This doctrine is, is supported by some different uh, arguments. Uh, one is that an issue was made of the facts of these trees in the Garden of Eden. And it is stated that the trees represent figuratively people. And they go to Ezekiel 31, which speaks of the king of Assyria being a mighty cedar tree. And uh, Ezekiel 31 also mentions other trees that are in, in an Eden, or a garden of God. And they say this is referring to pre-Adamic people in Eden. Uh, the Eden spoken about in this chapter of Ezekiel is doubtful to be the, the original Eden that existed over 3,000 years earlier. It's something that's used figuratively. But it is true that trees are used symbolically or figuratively for people or nations or kings. Notice what Charles Weissman is saying here very carefully. He is very crafty in the way he is presenting his position here. Before Charles Weissman is through here, he will prove to all that listen to him his knowledge of the Bible is very limited and uninspired. Charles Weissman is a very clever salesman, though, and I am sure he will find a few suckers. I am going to point out some of his falsehoods, and maybe then he will find it a little more difficult in finding these suckers. Nobody wants to be suckered into anything, including me, and I could tell you of the different stories where it has happened to me. At this point in his presentation, he is setting you up to get you to buy something you really don't want and something that simply is not true. Let's check here on what he is saying. He is saying that the cedar trees mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 31 are figurative to represent people. This is correct. He also goes on to say that the Eden spoken of here is not the same Eden as in the Garden of Genesis, which may also be true as far as the Assyrian Empire is concerned. He is starting his evasive tactics to dupe you here. It is true that the, quote, trees, unquote, of Ezekiel chapter 31 may not represent empires in Eden, but they very well could represent races in Eden. Mr. Charles Weissman says something here that I have never heard anyone say. He says that the, quote, trees, unquote, of Genesis 31 is figurative, quote, figurative, unquote, of an Eden which is also, quote, figurative, unquote. I have never found anything in the Bible that is figurative, for something else that is figurative. It is always something figurative for something that is real. This tactic should really start ringing bells and lighting up warning lights that he is getting ready to con you. What he is setting you up for is, every time he finds a scripture that he doesn't like, he will say it is figurative. You should be familiar with the people who don't know the Israel truth how they will say we are, quote, spiritual, unquote, Israel. 
This Eden in Genesis was not a garden of wooden trees, but a garden of family trees. Now we can start off in the Bible in Genesis 3. And one verse that is quoted to support this is Genesis 3, 3, where Eve is talking to the serpent and says, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now it is said that this word touched, number 5060, is a euphemism which means to lie with a woman. And if you look up this word in Strong's Hebrew Dictionary or Gesenius' Lexicon, you'll find that it is used as a euphemism to mean to lie with a woman. But there are also a dozen other usages for this word, the most common of which is just to touch as we would do with a hand. Adam and Eve were told not to eat or touch of one specific tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. At this point, we are going to get into the meat of this thing. When we get through with this thing, we are going to understand what Eve, quote, did eat, unquote, and what Eve did, quote, touch, unquote. Mr. Charles Weissman, I have most of the reference books you mentioned on this tape, and a lot more, and I can tell you that you are completely misrepresenting the material you are presenting along with Holy Writ. Let's go back to Genesis 3.3 and start over and get it right. Let's start by reading Genesis 3.3 again. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now we are really going to see what the Gesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon of the Old Testament has to say. Mr. Charles Weissman, you probably thought that no one would ever take the time to check you out on this one, did you? Well, my Gesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon of the Old Testament, pages 531 and 532, word number 5060, pronounced Naga, N-A-G-A, for the word, quote, touch, unquote, besides meaning, quote, to touch or reach into, unquote, means, quote, to violate, to injure, unquote. And this is what happened to Eve. She was violated and injured. She was violated sexually by Satan and injured by an injection of Satan's sperm. All of this is under the first usage, including, quote, to touch a woman to lie with her, unquote. Mr. Charles Weissman, if you would have researched real well, you would have noticed the Gesenius Hebrew Chaldee lexicon of the Old Testament refers to two scriptures where the word, quote, touch, unquote, means to have sexual intercourse. They are Proverbs 6.29 and Genesis 20, verse 6. We will read them now. Proverbs 6.29. 
and we will need to read verses 27 through 29. 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? 28. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? 29. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Genesis 26. And this is where Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. And God said unto him in a dream, Yet I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. In both of these verses, the word, quote, touch, unquote, is the same as in Genesis 3.3. It means sexual intercourse here, and it means sexual intercourse in Genesis 3.3. Another place where this word, quote, touch, unquote, is used for sexual intercourse is found in the 26th chapter of Genesis, which is the story of how Isaac and Rebekah went to Egypt for relief of a famine which was happening in Palestine at the time. Upon arriving in Egypt, the Enosh of the place looked upon Rebekah with adulterous eyes. And Isaac, fearing for his life, told his Enosh that Rebekah was his sister, for he knew it was the custom of the time to kill the husband and rape the wife. Finally, Abimelech discovered the truth that Rebekah was Isaac's wife, and he approaches Isaac in verses 10 and 11. 10. And Abimelech said, What is this that thou, thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lain with thy wife, and thou shouldest have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He that toucheth this man or his wife shall be surely put to death. The word, quote, toucheth, unquote, here again means sexual intercourse, and it says so in verse 10, and let's repeat it. Quote, One of the people might have lain with thy wife, Unquote. We can see here that the word, quote, touch, unquote, 5060, does indeed mean to lie with, to violate, or injure. How can anyone deny that Eve was not sexually seduced by Satan, resulting in the birth of Cain? This word number 5060 for touch, or toucheth, is used again in this same 26th chapter of Genesis toward the end of the chapter in the 29th verse. It is speaking here of how Isaac and Abimelech make an agreement, and in it Abimelech agrees not to molest either Isaac or Rebekah. Let's read verses 28 and 29. 28, And they said, we saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath between us, even between us and thee, 
and let us make a covenant with thee that thou wilt do us no hurt as we have not touched thee and as we have done unto thee nothing but good and sent thee away in peace thou art now the blessed of the Lord here the word quote touched unquote means that Abimelech and his Enosh agreed not to harm Isaac or violate Rebekah by raping her and again we can see here that the word touch means the idea of sexual intercourse at least on Rebekah's part I have now showed you four different places where touch means sexual intercourse other than Genesis 3 3 Adam and Eve were told not to eat or touch of one specific tree the tree of knowledge and good and evil now if touch meant to lie with a woman and Eve touched this tree then Eve would had to have lied with a woman because this word is used as a euphemism in that manner in about three or four passages and the one who touches a woman is the one who lies with a woman why would God tell both Adam and Eve not to touch or lie with a woman it doesn't make sense obviously that is not the meaning employed here so I have to dismiss that argument mr. Charles Weissman is deliberately confusing the issue at this point Satan was a seducer and Eve was a seduced Eve points out in Genesis 3:13 that quote the serpent beguiled me and I did eat unquote I did a call I did lay to see what this means let's go to Proverbs 30:20 as a support scripture on this such is the way of an adulterous woman she eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith I have done no wickedness when it says quote she eateth unquote here it means she had sexual intercourse with someone other than her husband just as Eve did with Satan there is another scripture in Proverbs 9:17, which also alludes to this same idea stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant George M Lamsa in his book idioms in the Bible explained says that the quote stolen waters unquote spoken of here means quote stolen love unquote he further says that the quote bread eaten in secret is pleasant unquote means quote making love to another woman in secret appears pleasant unquote what is so outstanding about this one is the word quote eaten unquote is added by the King James translators it proves that they understood the Hebrew idiom and added the word quote eateth unquote in italics meaning to have sexual intercourse the Dakes anointed reference Bible understands this also on page 647 column 1 note C the foolish woman verse 13 preaches that unlawful pleasures are sweeter than lawful ones 
Upon this is built all the adulterous behavior in the land. Verse 17. You can see here then that not only does the Hebrew wording indicate that Eve had sex with Satan, but also the translators of the King James Bible understood the meaning of the word, quote, eat, unquote, that it means having sex. It's only people like Mr. Charles Weissman today that doesn't understand it. Now, Mr. Charles Weissman tries to twist things here to make it look like if Eve ate of this tree, she was laying with another woman. It wasn't another woman that was lying with Eve. It was Satan that was lying with a woman, and that woman was Eve. Mr. Charles Weissman, the word usage is correct here. As for Adam, he was not in the transgression. 1 Timothy 2.14, and let's read it. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The word just means to touch, as we would commonly use it. And the problem was not with touching the tree, but with eating of it. So we go to uh, Genesis 3.13, which says, And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now the beguiling caused Eve to eat, not to conceive, not to become pregnant. Eat just means to consume. It really has no sexual connotation to it at all. If eat meant to have sex, why would God tell Adam and Eve that they may freely eat or have sex with all the other trees or people in Eden? That'd be ridiculous. But it is claimed that the word beguiled, which is nasha in the Hebrew, 5377 means seduce in a sexual manner. Well, this word is, is actually used 12 other times in the Old Testament. And every single time, it is translated as deceive or deceived in the King James. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul is concerned that the Corinthians would lose their faith and said, But I fear least somehow, as a serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety, so your minds be corrupted. So he interpreted this verse to mean something of a mental thing, a mental delusion, mentally delude, to lead astray, deceive, and that's just what the word means. Mr. Charles Weissman, I would like to point out that the word, quote, seduce, unquote, in 2 Corinthians 11.3 is the word expeao, Greek number 1818 means to fully seduce. And I think if you will check it through some of the other concordances, you'll find another number on it. But if you check it out completely, you'll find that the word is number 1818. We'll go back and go over this thing now. Mr. Charles Weissman, I would like to point out that the word, quote, seduce, unquote, in 2 Corinthians 11.3 
is the word expaaho. Greek number 1818 means to fully seduce in both the Strong's Concordance and in the complete word study by Spiros Zahadis on page 600. To, quote, fully seduce, unquote, means that Eve took Satan's bait, hook, line, and sinker. She went all the way. One of your problems here is you are keying in on one verse and not taking into consideration the other verses in the same passage. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 11.3 because it is simply outstanding. In order to understand verse 3, we are going to have to read from verse 1 through 3. That is the problem, Mr. Charles Weissman. You are not reading everything in connection with the passage. Before we read it, though, let's preview it just a little. We find Paul here in a state that he wishes to brag about his ministry. We all like to do that occasionally. Paul was probably a little proud of himself for doing such a good job of presenting the gospel to these Corinthians, but at the same time he warns them that someone might come along to undo all that he had done. Now Paul is concerned about someone sub subverting their minds such as Eve's was, but the way it is stated here can leave no doubt that Eve was also physically seduced. Let's read it. 1. Would to God ye would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that ye may present you, that he may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear less by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now I know Paul is speaking of mental seduction here, but at the same time he is comparing this mental seduction to Eve's physical seduction, or why even bring up the idea of a chaste virgin? In other words, Eve was a, quote, chaste virgin, unquote, until Satan physically seduced her. There is no possible way Satan could have taken away Eve's virginity through mental seduction. Of course, if you don't understand that Israel was divorced by Yahweh, and that the only way he could remarry her was by dying according to the law, you will not understand why it was important that we become as, quote, chaste virgins, unquote, so he can remarry us. Now, it's interesting that some supporting this doctrine have made a great, gone into great lengths to make these trees in Eden to be people, and how Eve had sex with one of them, this tree of knowledge and good and evil, and that was sin. But this is totally contrary to the thesis that the serpent impregnated Eve. 
The tree and the serpent are two different entities. Eve did not touch the serpent, and the serpent did not touch Eve. The touching was with the tree, the eating was with the tree. None of these things involve the serpent, which is critical to the satanic seedline doctrine. Mr. Charles Weissman, the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil are not two different entities. They are the same thing. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but you are getting close to the greatest tenet of the Christian faith. You probably are not aware of it, or you wouldn't have made the statement if you were. Let's take an example. The tree of life and Yahshua are the same thing, and when we take communion, we eat of the tree of life. Therefore, if the tree of life and Yahshua are the same thing, so is the serpent and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mr. Charles Weissman, it appears that you are using any picayune trivial statement you can to gain your point. When you are starting with false doctrine like you are, you must continue to build up on it with one lie on top of another to support it. When you start with the truth, that is no problem. The only thing that could constitute sin on the part of Adam and Eve had to do with this tree of knowledge and good and evil. It's the only thing. God never said to them, don't touch the serpent, don't mess with the serpent, don't have intercourse with the serpent. There's nothing they could have done with the serpent that could have constituted sin or their, quote, fall. So everything up to now does not support a keen satanic seed line. There is no connection with the serpent, only this tree. Then we go to the uh, primary verse of this doctrine, which is Genesis 3.15. God is, is speaking here and says, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, one man said that this is the single most important verse in the Bible. Now, that's a very powerful statement for somebody to make, and should really catch your attention. They say that the seed of the woman is through Seth. But if Cain was the product of the serpent and Eve, then Cain is also the seed of the woman, or of Eve. If Cain and Seth both came from the same woman, then they can both be called the seed of the woman. But Genesis 3.15 speaks of two very different seeds. If you look at the genealogy or seed line in the Bible, they are not called the seed of the woman. They're called the seed of Adam, or the son of Adam, son of man, or they're called the children of Abraham, or the house of Joseph. It's always in reference to some male patriarch. If the entire lineage from Adam was meant in this verse, 
it would not have been stated as the seed of the woman, since descendants are never followed through the female line, but rather the male line. Thus the seed of Genesis 3.15 cannot mean a seed line, because the only seed line followed is that of men starting with Adam, not with Eve. Mr. Charles Weissman, I don't think you are correct on this last statement. When I read this next scripture, you are going to understand how stupid this last statement you made is. Well, maybe you won't, but everybody else will. Let's read Genesis 17, verses 15 and 16 at this time, and this is speaking of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Do you think that Eve is no less important than Sarah? You say that Eve doesn't have a seed line? Then by the same analogy, Sarah wouldn't have a seed line either. But Genesis 17:16 says that she does have. Then how about the lineage of Joshua? He was of the line of Judah through his mother's father side of the, of the family and was an Aaronic priest through his mother's mother side of the family. If what you are saying then, Joshua's only seed line would be that of Yahweh, and he would no longer be a lion of the tribe of Judah, nor would he hold the office of high priest, nor could we say that he is our kinsman redeemer. I would like to use a four-letter word here that starts with S, but I will just say feces to this last statement by Weissman. Now note in this verse 315 that the two seeds mentioned are spoken of in the singular and not the plural. It says, and her it shall bruise, the King James has it shall bruise thy head, but the proper translation is he shall bruise thy head. And the serpent is referred to as you. You shall bruise his heel. It's all in the singular. Mr. Charles Weissman, I think you are doing it again. What you are saying here is that both the serpent and the woman can have only one seed each. Now I don't know who taught you about the birds and the bees, but there is something strangely lacking in your understanding on this subject. What I am wondering is, if Sarah can be a mother of, quote, nations, kings, and people, unquote, why isn't it possible for Eve to be the mother of a multitude of, quote, nations, kings, and people, unquote, too? You are right on one thing you said. The word, quote, it, unquote, is speaking of the one of the many seeds that Eve would have, which would be Joshua. 
the word for seed here is 22330 and means to be fruitful. Now if Eve was only going to have one seed, that wouldn't be very fruitful, would it? So both the serpent and the woman were to have a multiplicity of seed. I will say one thing here, you are really hung up on one seed, but to this extent it is ridiculous. If we are to use the same rationale of thought you are using on Genesis 3.15 and apply it to Abraham, we would say because Abraham is a singular person, therefore he can have only one seed. Now you talk about the trickster and the old shell game. The trickster doesn't have anything over you and to think some people are actually going to buy what you have to say. Not only does Genesis 3.15 speak of one of the seeds of the woman being the Redeemer, but it speaks of one of the seeds of the serpent as the one to bruise Joshua. This bruising of Joshua was fulfilled in Judas's lifting up his heel or eating a man's food while he is planning to betray him. This Judas was the satanic seed spoken of in Genesis 3.15 and is spoken of in John 6 verses 70 and 71 and John 13.18. John 6, 70 and 71. 70. Jesus answered them, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. John 13:18. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. This heel of John 13:18 is the same heel of Genesis 3:15. This scripture alone proves the satanic seed line. What does all this mean? Well, this verse has for centuries been understood to be a prophecy concerning Christ. The seed of the woman can only be Christ because Christ is the only one born of a seed of a woman and not of a man. Now I have some uh, quotes here from some Bible commentaries I'd like to share with you on this matter. Professor Davison in his Bible commentary on Genesis 3.15 says this, Note the transition from the serpent seed to the serpent himself and also the fact that the seed of the woman is in the singular. Only in Christ, the seed of the woman, could this victory be accomplished. Now Adam Clark says this, He that is to bruise the head of the serpent is the seed of the woman. The person is to come by, by the woman and by her alone without the concurrence of man. Therefore, the address is not to Adam and Eve, but to Eve alone. 
And it was in consequence of this purpose of God that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. This and this alone is what is implied in the promise of the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. Now, I found out that this passage, Genesis 3.15, is called by a, a name. It has a name. It's called the Protevangelium. P-R-O-T is a prefix meaning beginning, the start of, or the original, as in the term prototype. And evangelium means gospel message. So it means, protevangelium means first gospel, or the beginning of the gospel message. The Whitcliffe Bible Commentary says this about Genesis 3.15. It is an announcement of a prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory for the seed of the woman. God's promise that the head of the serpent was to be crushed pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah and guaranteed victory. So we have a victory here, and we also seem to have the fact that this serpent entity is being crushed or destroyed. And that's very significant. Uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, in their Bible commentary on the phrase, it shall bruise thy head, state, the serpent's poison or power is lodged in its head, and a bruise on that part is fatal. Thus fatal shall be the stroke which Satan shall receive from Christ. Though it is probable, he did not at first understand the nature and extent of his doom. So he is doomed by Christ. Matthew Henry states this about Genesis 3.15. The serpent is... I am so happy that Charles Weissman brought up the protevangelon. He is naming it correctly. I would like to read a few verses from the protevangelon out of the lost books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden. Protevangelon, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And this is talking of Joseph discovering that Mary is pregnant. And when her sixth month was come, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, which was his trade, and entering into the house found the virgin grown big. Then smiting upon his face, he said, with what face can I look upon the Lord my God, or what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord my God, and have not preserved her such. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house, and seducing the virgin from me, hath defiled her? Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her. Just after the same manner it has happened to me. Then Joseph, arising from the ground, called her and said, O thou who hast been so much favored by God, why hast thou done this? Why hast thou debased thy soul 
who was educated in the Holy of Holies and received the food from the hand of angels. But she, with a flood of tears, replied, I am innocent. I have known no man. But you may say, this book was not canonized. Canonized by whom? The Roman Catholic Church? Well, what do they have to do with it? Where or when does Yahweh give pagans the authority to canonize anything? And what does the Council of Nicaea have to do with it? By what authority did the Council of Nicaea have anything to say about what books were to be in the Bible and which ones were not? You have to understand that the Roman Catholic Church has never been a part of Yahshua's Ecclesia. They have never been a part of the true church even for one day. They have never been a part of the true church for one hour. They have never been a part of the true church for one minute. They have never been a part of the true church for one second. What are we going to do with all the books that were referred to in our present Bible that are not there today? Oh, I am sure we should be careful with these books. We should even be careful with the King James uh, Version of the Bible. This protoevangelon does prove here that someone understood the seduction of Eve to be physical and not mental. The protoevangelon is just verifying what the Bible says if we study to show ourselves approved. Matthew Henry states this about Genesis 3.15. The serpent is here condemned to a state of war and irreconcilable enmity. He is destroyed and ruined at last by the great Redeemer, signified by the breaking of his head. A gracious promise is here made of Christ as the deliverer of fallen man from the power of Satan. Here was the dawning of the gospel day. Notice is here given of three things concerning Christ. One, his incarnation, that he should be the seed of the woman. Two, his sufferings and death, pointed at in Satan's bruising his heel, which occurred when his feet were pierced and nailed to the cross. Three, his victory over Satan thereby, or by his death. He had victory over the this, this serpent entity, sometimes called Satan. Okay, what is the victory over? Well, two obvious things, sin and death. The Geneva Bible translators state, He, Christ, shall break thine head. That is the power of sin and death. Adam Clark states, Jesus Christ died to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and to destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Thus he bruises his head, destroys his power and lordship over mankind, turning them from the power of Satan unto God. Acts 26:18. We also have a victory here over evil. 
the evil of the serpent. Lamza says that the serpent was metaphorically used as an agent of evil forces. The spirit, capital S spirit, was to have victory and dominion over the flesh and the spiritual man over the physical man. Messiah Christ was to crush the head of the serpent and save man from the evil forces and bring him back to God. We also have a victory over, over a political power structure, a political system. Matthew Henry says this about the serpent. Christ shall bruise his head, that is, he shall destroy all his politics and all his powers and give a total overthrow to his kingdom and interest. By his death, Christ gave a fatal blow to the devil's kingdom, a wound to the head of this beast that can never be healed. Thus the nature of this enmity is also political in nature, kingdom versus kingdom. And Christ's kingdom prevail. Mr. Charles Weissman, I will tell you the reference books I have in my library. The 12-volume Interpreter's Bible, the one-volume Interpreter's Bible, the Matthew Henry's Bible Commentary, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown Commentary on the Bible, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, the Adam Clark's Commentary, the International Bible Commentary by F.F. Bruce, the Peaks Bible Commentary, the Concise Bible Commentary, the Matthew Poole's Commentary on the Holy Bible. In addition to these, I have most of the lexicons and concordances on Hebrew and Greek that you can find. Now, we have to be careful with these Bible commentaries and reference books. In my writings, I find that I can use less than 1% of their remarks. I do find that I need these Bible commentaries, though, because these people who made them up are pretty good historians. Now, when I write something, I want to know who, what, when, where, why, and how. These commentaries help me with the when. Now, there are a few real gems here and there in them, and I would like to point one of them out in the Wycliffe Bible Commentary on Genesis 3:14 and 15 on page 8. 14. Cursed. A-R-U-R. Art thou. The Lord singled out the originator and instigator of the temptation for spatial condemnation and degradation. From that moment he must crawl in the dust and even feed on it. He would slither his way along in disgrace and hatred would be directed against him from all directions. Man would always regard him as a symbol of the degradation of the one who slandered God. C.F. Isaiah 65:25. He was to represent not merely the serpent race, but the power of the evil kingdom. As long as life continued, men would hate him and seek to destroy him. 15. I will put enmity. 
The word Eba, E-B-A, denotes the blood feud that runs deepest in the heart of man, CF Numbers 35, 19, and 20, Ezekiel 25, 15 through 17, chapter 35, 5 and 6. Thou shalt bruise, S-H-U-P, a prophecy of continuing struggle between the descendants of woman and of the serpent to destroy each other. The verb S-H-U-P is rare. C.F. Job 9.17, Psalm 139.11. It is the same in both clauses. When translated uh, crush, it seems appropriate to the reference concerning the head of the serpent, but not quite so accurate in describing the attack of the serpent on man's heel. It is also rendered lie in wait for, aim at, or LXX, watch for. The Vulgate renders it C-O-N-T-E-R-E-T, quote, bruise, unquote, in the first instance, and I-N-S-I-D-I-A-B-E-R-I-S, lie in wait, in the second clause. Thus we have in this famous passage called a Protovangelon, first gospel, the announcement of a prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory for the seed of the woman. God's promise that the head of the serpent was to be crushed pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah and guaranteed victory. This assurance fell upon the ears of God's earliest creatures as a blessed hope of redemption. I would like to repeat two sentences here for emphasis. He was to represent not merely the serpent race, but the power of the evil kingdom, and a prophecy of continuing struggle between the descendants of woman and of the serpent to destroy each other. Now, it just couldn't be said any better than this. This is the whole ball game, and if we don't understand the protoevangelon or the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, you do not understand the theme of the Bible. Without this, the Bible becomes a mystery. Now, Mr. Charles Weissman, when you quoted from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, you only quoted part of this reference. You omitted the part about the serpent race. Not only this, it had to be a deliberate omission on your part. When I see people who don't understand this truth of Genesis 3.15, then I understand why we are not winning the war. You will notice here that the writer in the Wycliffe uh, Bible Commentary makes the crushing of the serpent's head a future event at Joshua's second coming. Now, Mr. Charles Wiseman says that the head of the serpent was crushed or bruised at the time of Joshua's crucifixion. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about it. 
Romans 16.20 And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now the writer of Romans was the Apostle Paul. It is apparent here then that at the time of Paul, that the time Paul was writing this, the bruising of Satan's head had not happened yet. So the bruising of the head of the serpent couldn't have happened at Joshua's crucifixion. Now either Paul is wrong or Mr. Charles, uh, Charles Wiseman is wrong and I'll put my money on Paul. Now this quote from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary is simply outstanding in pointing out the serpent race and his evil kingdom and pointing out the struggle between the descendants of the woman and of the serpent to destroy each other and the guy writing the uh, Wy Wycliffe commentary is not an identity teacher. Now there are some verses which are cross-referenced to Genesis 3.15 in the New Testament. That is, they have a relationship to Genesis 3.15. One is Colossians 2.15, which says this, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he, Christ, made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Also, John 3, 1 John 3.8, which says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And Hebrews 2.14, which states that through death he, Jesus, might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear and fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Christ destroyed the serpent of Genesis 3.15. And he set Adamic man free of the bondage of sin and death imposed upon them by the serpent, or the works of the serpent. Thus the enmity is between the serpent and Christ, the seed of the woman, not with Adam's descendants, because the serpent had already subdued Adamic man, and they never had the power to free themselves from that bondage. The only one that could undo what the serpent had caused or brought about was Jesus Christ. Thus Christ was an enemy of the serpent. He was a threat to the system and the order that the serpent established. Not man. Man could never do anything about that order. And we prevail over these things because we have victory through Christ, 1 Corinthians 15:57. Now the identifying of this serpent with the term Satan or devil can be somewhat confusing since these terms can be ascribed to many different things or persons, such as the angel of God was a Satan against Balaam. Numbers 22:22. 22, 22. David 
was a Satan or adversary to the Philistines. 1 Samuel 29.4 People are called devil who are slanderers. 1 Timothy 3.11 And people are called devil who are false accusers. Titus 2.3 Judas was called a devil. Peter was called a Satan. The terms devil and Satan are used to refer to evil in general or to sin or to the enemy. Corrupt political religious systems or authorities are called Satan. Man's lust or cardinal nature can be called the devil. Thus, these words, devil and Satan, are not given one singular meaning and usage throughout Scripture nor is the word serpent. But that is how Christendom has always treated them and interpret them. So even though these words, devil and Satan, were applied to this serpent of Genesis 3.15, which is now destroyed, they are applied to many other things as well. Thus the terms devil and Satan are still used and still can be used, as is the term serpent but they cannot be used in reference to the serpent of Genesis 3.15 still existing. So whatever this serpent was, it is at an end, or at least its power is certainly at an end. And thus the enmity it had with Christ, the seed of the woman, is ended. Now a lot of people in the Satanic Seedline Doctrine have made this statement. We are now nearing the climax of the enmity spoken of in Genesis 3.15. No, we are not. That climax was reached 2,000 years ago. To say that this enmity exists today, that there is an ongoing confrontation because of it, is to say Christ failed in his mission and in what he was to accomplish by his death and shed blood. Genesis 3.15 is an academic matter, as are all fulfilled prophecies. And that's what this is. It is a fulfilled prophecy. But it has become the basis of theological thought for many because they see this word enmity in regards to two seeds, and then they look out in the world today and in history and see an enmity that exists between two peoples, the Jews and white Christians, and they conclude that this verse is the reason for it. But it is not. Now, I'm not saying that there is no enmity or evil in the world today. I'm saying that there is no enmity or evil in the world today because of Genesis 3.15 or the seed of the serpent. Enmity and evil can exist or be caused by many different things. Romans 8.7 says, the cardinal mind is enmity against God. James 4.1 and Galatians 5.20 say state that wars, fightings, conflicts, hatred, and strife come from your lust or the works of the flesh. 
Mark 7.21, Christ said, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, thefts, wickedness, etc. You have all the enmity and evil you ever want to deal with in this world right within your own inner nature. But, you might ask, is there not a conflict that exists in the spiritual realm in some manner? Well, yes, there is. But the enmity that exists today and in the past is not due to satanic genes in certain people or from some cursed serpents still existing. But rather, it comes from curses that God has placed upon certain persons of our race, the Adamic people, such as Cain. Cain was cursed. Canaan and Esau, the evil figs of Judah, and the Judean Israelites I spoke of in the other message. These cursed people naturally have enmity against God and God's people. And that is what you are experiencing and contending with today. Now, as far as Cain is concerned, what is his story? Where did he come from? Let's look at Genesis 4.1. where it talks about Cain's introduction. It says, And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now one man has stated that this verse is one of the worst polluted and poorly translated verses in the entire King James Bible. Because upon reading it, it appears that Cain came from Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. I don't know why he picks on the King James, because you can look at any translation from the Septuagint to the NIV, and you get that basic meaning. Now, others say that the word knew means to observe. Thus, Adam observed his wife, Eve, that she conceived and saw that she was pregnant. Another person says this after reading Genesis 4.1. says, Now notice what is not said is more significant than what is said. The Bible nowhere says Adam begat Cain because the word begat is not there. So these are the two arguments re regarding Genesis 4.1. Well, look at Genesis 4.17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. There you have the word knew being used as a euphemism for sexual relation. It's the same way as it is in Genesis 4.1. And also look at Genesis 4.25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. Now this basically reads identical to Genesis 4.1, except here we have the word Seth, and in Genesis 4.1 you got the word Cain. It's identical. And we go back up to Cain, you know, it doesn't say anything about begatting there either. It doesn't have to say begat. says, 
and also says in verse 18 that Enoch, and unto Enoch was born I read. There's different ways to say that. The word new is obviously euphemism. It's like what uh, it says in Genesis 24:16 about Rebecca. It says, The damsel was very fair to look upon a virgin. Neither had any man known her. New, known, is a euphemism for sexual relations. Now they also say that Cain is not listed in Adam's gene- genealogy, which proves he was not the son of Adam. Well, cursed and rejected people are never listed in the genealogy. Esau and Canaan, Ishmael, Moab, none of those are listed as being part of Adam's genealogy, although they were all true Adamites. If somebody marries into another race, that person is not going to be listed in the genealogy anymore, even though that person was a true Adamite. The fact that Cain isn't listed has nothing to do with his race. We also have to ask this question. If Cain was the offspring of the serpent and thus cursed above all creatures on the earth, why would God still accept him? As it states in Genesis 4-6, where it states, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou dost well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not well, sin lies at the door. So was God willing to accept some cursed, half-breed, satanic mongrel? Well, no, he wasn't. He was, but he was willing to accept a descendant of Adam. Mr. Charles Weissman, there you go again with more garbage. What you are saying about Cain here is not correct at all. Let me show you what the true implications of the birth of Cain are. Hardly had Cain been born that he was put in second place. Many writers and commentators point out the fact that in Genesis 4-2, the order is changed from Cain and Abel to Abel and Cain. We have to ask the question then, why would this be? Cain had not murdered Abel yet, so we can't say that was a cause. Moses was writing this, and why would he change the order of the names? You will remember that Reuben was disqualified from being the firstborn for an impropriety with his mother and was replaced with Joseph. The order of Esau and Jacob was changed to Jacob and Esau, Genesis 25:23. Being that Cain was fathered by Satan would be enough to disqualify him for the position of firstborn or priest of the family. Let's read Genesis 4, 1 and 2 to see how this reads. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, And Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. 
Why then was Cain disqualified as firstborn? In verse 7 of this same chapter, the subject of the birthright is brought up. Let's read verses uh, 6 and 7 and to see it. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall his desire be, and thou shalt rule over him. You can see here it is speaking about the birthright, real plain. As Cain was the firstborn, he would be in line for the family priesthood as well as the inheritance. We are talking about big stakes here. There is more to this than just the acceptance of the sacrifices. Cain evidently wanted to kill Abel all along for losing his position as firstborn and used the rejected sacrifice for an excuse to justify it. Secondly, there is something here that should stand out real big to anyone who reads it, and that is, quote, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, unquote. What does this mean? Quote, And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, unquote. A lot of people try to read this as if Cain had a choice in the matter. That is not what it is saying at all. What is it saying then? Yahweh through Moses is speaking of Cain's conception and birth here. His natural tendency towards sin as a result of the character of his father. Cain's conception was therefore his door. Yahweh knew that he wouldn't do well and wasn't fit for the birthright, and he told him as much. In other words, Cain's opening place into the entrance of life was his conception and birth. The word here refers to number 6605, which means to open wide or break forth. Thus we can see the implications here of conception. Legal status. I believe that some of the confusion over Genesis 4.1 is a misunderstanding of legal status. Have you ever read a legal contract where they would use the terms party of the first part, party of the second part, party of the third part, etc.? This is done so someone in the contract doesn't get mixed up with another person which could be disastrous for all other parties in the contract. Let's apply this same method with the Bible. Let's apply it this way. Satan, party of the first part. Eve, party of the second part. Adam, party of the third part. Cain, party of the fourth part. Abel, party of the fifth part. Seth, party of the sixth part. We will be using four verses here, Genesis 3.13, Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2, Genesis 4.25.
Genesis 3.13. And the woman said, Party the second part. The serpent, party the first part, beguiled me, party the second part. And I, party the second part, did eat. Genesis 4.1. And Adam, party the third part, knew Eve his wife, party the second part, and she, party the second part, conceived and bare Cain, party the fourth part, and said, I have gotten a man, party the fourth part, from the Lord. Genesis 4.2 And she, party the second part, bare his brother Abel, party the fifth part. Genesis 4.25 and Adam, party of the third part, knew Eve his wife again, party of the second part, and she, party of the second part, bare a son, party of the sixth part, and called his name Seth, party of the sixth part. For God, said she, party of the second part, hath appointed me another seed, party of the sixth part, instead of Abel, party of the fifth part, whom Cain, party of the fourth part, slew. If we understand that Eve was already pregnant by Satan when Adam knew her, Genesis 4.1 would be correct in saying that, quote, Adam knew Eve his wife, unquote, and then, quote, she conceived and bare Cain, unquote. You will notice that it doesn't say that Abel was conceived. This is important. The sequence of events are like this. Satan seduced Eve and got her pregnant. Then Adam knew Eve and fertilized an extra egg that didn't get fertilized by Satan. Then Eve bare Cain, fathered by Satan, firstly. Then Eve bare Abel, fathered by Adam, secondly. If we can understand this chain of events, then we can understand the reading of Genesis 4.1. Next, Mr. Charles Weissman says these Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes were true representatives of Israel, to which I answer. Mr. Charles Weissman, of all the outlandish statements you have made so far, this one about the Jews in the 8th chapter of John being true representatives of Israel has to be the most repulsive remark you have come up with yet. By making such a remark, you have just proved that you do not understand the migrations and movements of Israel in history. Assyria had carried away all the northern ten tribes and all of Judah except Jerusalem, and they never came back. Then Nebuchadnezzar carried away Jerusalem, and very few of them came back. The few that did come back with Ezra and Nehemiah were mostly of a mixed multitude. Then for the next 490 years, these continued to mix with Edomites and Canaanites until the time of the Messiah. There were no pure blood of Judah left, in the area of Palestine. Up around Galilee there were a few pure-blooded Benjamites and that is where Joshua got all his disciples except Judas 
who was one of these Canaanite Jew devils. So these Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes that Joshua addressed his remarks to were not, I repeat, not true representatives of Israel, but the satanic seed of Cain. For proof on this, we are going to 1 Chronicles 2.55 to identify them during the time roughly from Joshua up through the judges, etc. 1 Chronicles 2.55 And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Terathites, the Shimeathites, the Succothites, these are the Kenites that came from Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. Now the whole second chapter of First Chronicles from verse 3 on is the lineage of Judah. Then tacked on at the end of the chapter, verse 55, is this group of people who are actually descendants of Cain, known as Kenites, and have no blood connection at all with Judah. A footnote in the complete word study King James Bible by Spiros Zahadis, page 1055, says, quote, They became incorporated into the tribe of Judah, unquote. The word Kenite here is 7017 in the Strong's Concordance. Actually, the numbers for Cain are both 7014 and 7017. You will notice here in 1 Chronicles 2.55, they are called, quote, the family of the scribes, unquote. They were scribes at this time, and they were scribes in Joshua's time. They are the same people. At this time, I'm going to quote from the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 3, page 782. Kenites, meaning metalworkers, smith, clan or tribal name of semi-nomadic people of South Palestine and Sinai. The Aramaic and Arabic etymologies of the root G-Y-M show that it has to do with metal and metal work. Thus a Hebrew word from this root, quote, lance, unquote. This probably indicates that the Kenites were metal workers, especially since Sinai and Wadi Arabia were rich in high-grade copper ore. W.F. Albright has pointed to the Ben Hassan mural in Egypt, 19th century B.C., as an illustration of such a wandering group of smiths. This mural depicts 36 men, women, and children in characteristic Semitic dress, leading along with other animals, donkeys laden with musical instruments, weapons, and an item which Albright has identified as a bellows. He has further noted that Lemak's three children, Genesis 4:19 through 22, were responsible for herds, Jabel, musical instruments, Jubal, and metalwork, Tubal Cain or Tubal the Smith. The three occupations which seem most evident in the mural. Now, if you want to research further on the word Kenite, try the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary on the whole Bible, page 293, 
or the Matthew Poole's Commentary on the Holy Bible, Volume 1, page 778. Now, if you should decide to research the word Kenite further, I have this warning. There are pure-blooded Israelites who are called Kenites. In these cases, they are only Kenites inasmuch as they live in a geographical area with the Kenites. Mr. Charles Weissman refers to various books, including the Talmud, which supports the two-seed-line doctrine, and my answer is, Mr. Charles Weissman, your reference here to the two-seed-line doctrine being in the various books of the Talmud is quite interesting. Now, it is my opinion that the Jews, as scribes, have stolen many of Israel's books. Just because the two-seed-line doctrine can be found in the Talmud does not make it untrue. As a matter of fact, these references you mentioned here only support the teaching of two-seed-line. When we understand that these satanic descendants of Cain attached themselves to the tribe of Judah as lawyers and scribes, then we can understand how they have copped onto our writings. Now I cut short on the remarks of Charles Weissman as the remainder of his thesis consisted on more drivel and there was no point of further need of continuation. I want to say something at this point concerning my responsibility about this message. If I know someone is bearing false witness and I sit idly by and not speak up, the Bible teaches that I am as guilty as a false witness. With this tape, I have washed all the blood off my hands of anything damaging resulting from this false witness. The Bible teaches that Yahweh hates anyone, quote, who soweth discord among the brethren, unquote. Proverbs 6.19 Discord is caused by lies. So the one who is causing the discord is the liar. Now it takes two people to make a lie. The liar and the ear that listens to the lie. One who wantingly listens to a lie is just as bad as the liar. It is your responsibility at this point to determine whether it is Mr. Charles Weissman who is bearing false witness or myself. For those who wish to promote Yahweh's truth, feel free to make as many copies of this tape as you wish. My only request is if you charge for it, you charge only the cost of copying it plus the cost of mailing it. One dollar should be sufficient if you personally hand it out or one dollar and fifty cents if you mail it. Thank you.